Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage, and let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God. This is week three of our online discipleship program. We're excited that you guys are participating in this program. Hopefully you found it to be edifying. If you have not purchased the books or um, gotten the study on the book of John that we're going through, I highly recommend that you do that. We've got a couple of ways for you to get that information if you still don't have it. The first uh, and best way would be to get into our Facebook group. If you are on Facebook and you just do a search for Scott Ross Discipleship Program, you'll be able to find our group. And I have links on uh, to the Amazon page for both the book, How to Study Your Bible, and the book, The God Who Knows and Loves You, uh, which is our study of the book of John. So I highly recommend that you get that stuff because that's what we're going through each week that we're on uh, this study together. Uh, today, we're going to be moving into chapter uh, t- three of the book, How to Study Your Bible, and then we'll be moving into week two of The God Who Knows and Loves You, which is the study on the book of John. So before we do that, let's open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to come together and learn your word and to learn more about you, to grow closer to you, to become more equipped to be the people that you call us to be. I pray that this study would be edifying to everybody that's on the internet right now and everybody who's listening to this recording afterwards. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would just speak to us, uh, speak through your word, speak through this study, and to grow us into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. We are now in chapter three, which is focusing in on the details. Okay, so we're in chapter three. And for those of you who are just joining us now for the first time, let's just do a quick recap. And this will be helpful for everybody who's even already been a part of what we're doing. Um, we are learning the inductive study method or what is called the precept upon precept method. And with the inductive study method, there are three steps that you're going to want to take uh, to make sure that you are gaining the maximum understanding of the scripture and getting the most out of it. And it's going to take away all the intimidation from studying the Bible on your own. And the first step is observation. And this is where we're going to observe the scripture. And we're going to spend 85% of our time in the observation phase of the process. Then we move to step two, that is interpretation. If we've done a good job in the observation stage, the interpretation stage will be absolutely simple as pie. And then the last stage is the application stage. And as we've talked about before, what people want to do is they want to go to the Bible or they want to go to church and listen to a sermon, and they want to have it um, applied to their life right now. They want to like, give me something I can use in my marriage. Give me something I can use in my business. Give me something I can use parenting my children. Give me something I can use with this, uh, pain that I'm going through or this heartbreak that I'm going through. They want to apply, but the, the danger of doing that is that we end up applying a lot of stuff that really doesn't have any meaning. And it's because we end up taking things out of context. Context, as we discussed last week, is one of the most critical things we want to observe when we're studying the Scripture, because a Scripture taken out of context becomes a pretext 
for a proof text. A scripture taken out of context become a pretext for a proof text. What does that mean? It means that we can make entire theological systems out of a single line of scripture that doesn't really say what we're saying that it says because we took it out of context. For instance, if I wrote a letter to my wife and there was a single line in the letter that said, I hate you, and she just pulled that line out, she could say, oh my goodness, my husband doesn't like me. My husband hates me. My husband has malicious intent for me. Well, what if that line was in quotes and I was quoting someone else that I had observed say that to another person. Doesn't that radically change the meaning? Absolutely it does. Well, that's the danger of pulling single scriptures out of their context. And Christians do this all the time. And the more you learn inductive study, the more you're going to have kind of some pet peeves because you're going to start to see the obvious places that people pull Scripture out of context and use it in a way that it should never be used. I mean, we have some that are just like so overused and so out of context that people who actually study the Word, they get tired of it. Even pastors who should know better quote stuff like this all the time. I'll give you an example. How many of you guys have heard the phrase, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst? Has, has anybody ever heard? a pastor say this, like, you know, they'll stand up at the prayer meeting. They'll say, guys, God's in our midst right now, because you know, where two or more are gathered, he's there. He's there. So this is going to be powerful. (laughs) Okay. First of all, what does that suggest that he's not there when there's only one? So like you're alone praying guys like, ah, sorry, can't help you, bro. If you'd had two I'd have been right there with you, but mm, nope, not the two or three. So powers diminished. So sad. Of course not. Uh, God's with us all the time. He is omnipresent. Of course, he's with us when we're alone. And of course, he hears our prayers. In fact, it says the prayers of the righteous man avail much or are too much avail, meaning they accomplish a lot. The problem is, is that that scripture has nothing to do with what people say it has to do with. It's from Matthew 18, and it specifically has to do with church discipline. What? Church discipline? Yeah, I know. We don't actually have it anymore. But in the day when we actually cared about the behavior of fellow churchmen, when we cared about the behavior, when there was a moral standard to actually participate in the body of Christ, there was such a thing as church discipline. And we are taught by Christ in Matthew 18 how to go about disciplining somebody who does not want to follow the standard set for us as Christians. So let's say, for instance, you have a person in your church that's committing adultery. Well, we have a series of steps that we're supposed to go through to address the adulterous behavior with our brother or sister. Once you've gone to them individually, if they accept your rebuke individually and they accept your you know, loving counsel to remove themselves from that sinful situation individually, if they reject that, then you're supposed to take another brother or sister with you and address it as two people on one. If they still won't listen, if they still insist on being in their sinful behavior, then you're supposed to bring them before the body And here's where Christ says, where two or three are gathered, so am I with them. What he's saying there is, when you've put them in, when you've gone through all the steps and they're still firm in their rebellion, my authority to discipline them is with you. 
you will be speaking for me at that point in your discipline of the person where two or three are gathered in my name, then you have my authority. That's what that scripture is talking about. But we never quote that in church discipline because we don't even do church discipline anymore. We got people committing adultery, people doing all kinds of things that cause the church to be seen as hypocrisy central, and we don't do it. So, but yet we quote the scripture. That's just one. I mean, I could give you hundreds of examples of scriptures quoted out of context all the time. And it's not something we want to do as people who want to handle the word of truth accurately. We want to prove ourselves as it says in Peter, we want to show ourselves as workmen approved to handle the word of God accurately. Then we've got to take context into mind. So context comes from this idea of observation. And I'm sorry, I kind of went off on a, on a little rant there. I'm just, uh, wanting to emphasize the importance of context and the importance of observation. And so we've been studying in our book this process of, of observing. And last week we focused on the big picture things we want to observe. Now we're going to focus on the details of what we're observing. And, um, you know, the first two steps are always the same two in observation. Step one is we're going to pray. Remember, the Holy Spirit is our counselor. The Holy Spirit is our guide. And as it says there in your book, as you start observing one chapter at a time, remember truth is revealed by the Spirit. So begin with prayer and continue in prayer. Luke 24, 45 says, then he, meaning Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It says in Corinthians that that which is spiritual must be spiritually discerned. You can't understand spiritual truth without the aid of the Holy Spirit and the Lord. So we always want to start with prayer and uh, ask Him to guide us. And then, like I've already just discussed at length, we want to talk about, or we want to keep context in mind. What does that mean? You know, what's happened in the chapter before? What's happened in the chapter after? What is happening around what we're talking about? Um, For instance, another scripture that's taken out of context is the scripture that says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, plans for a future. Well, people quote that all the time. They put it up on a poster on their wall and they're like, you know, something's going bad. They're like, see, hey, God's got a plan for you, a plan to prosper you. Well, Unfortunately, that scripture is actually taken as a prophecy right before God sends the nation of Israel into captivity and bondage under the nation of Babylon and under a uh, heretic pagan king as a punishment to them. God's about to cause Israel to go through 70 years of some of the worst time they've ever had in their history because they were so rebellious to him. And what he's saying is right as they go into slavery, he says, listen, I know you're going into slavery and it's going to suck really bad, but guess what? I still have a plan for you, and ultimately you're going to do well. That's where that scripture comes from. Should we apply that willy-nilly to every human on the face of the earth? Probably not. And so what happened in the in the chapter before? What happened in the chapter after? What's happening around what we see? That's what we want to ask when we ask about and look towards context. Now, there are... Five W's and an H. If you took Journalism 101 ever, you've learned these questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. And these are some of the details that we want to look for. 
Who is speaking? Who are they speaking about? Who are the major characters at play here? Who are the people mentioned? To whom is the author trying to reach? What is their purpose or who is their intended audience? For instance, when we read the book of Matthew, it's very important to know that the intended audience was the Jewish people. Matthew was desperately wanting to reach his own people with the message of the Messiah. We've already seen that in the book of John, John is reading writing to all people saying, I'm writing these things so that you may know that Christ is the Messiah and that in knowing so, you may believe in him and have life in his name. So knowing who is being written to, when we read the books of First and Second Corinthians, who were the Corinthians? When we read the book of Galatians, well, who were these Galatian people? What's going on in their culture? What's going on in their day-to-day life? So we can get a sense for why he would talk to them in the way that he's talking to them. Next, what? What are the main events? What are the major ideas? When you see ideas repeated over time that should stand out to you, like we see in our study from John this week, the words signs and believe and born again. These are repeated. So major ideas, huh? We should be paying attention to that. When did it take place? What's the chronology of what's going on here? What took place first and then second? Did this happen first or this happen first? Very important. Um, Where did it take place? Geography can make a big difference when we study scripture. You know, are we in the desert with Moses Are we in a pagan empire like the Ninevites that Jonah was sent to speak to? Are we in an area where uh, Christians are flourishing? Where things are taking place matters. Also, it matters because we might be in a place that's mountainous versus desert, might be seaside versus farmland. And in some cases, this can really impact our understanding of what's going on in the scripture. And then... Why was it being written? Why is this being mentioned? You know, for instance, when you read the study, the book of Galatians, as an example, Paul is furious with the Galatians. I mean, he is out of his mind upset. He's totally bewildered by their behavior. Well, that is really important to understand. Why was he so upset? What's really going on with the Galatian church that caused that much passion to come out of Paul? In writing that book. When we read the book of Romans, who is he writing to and why is he writing the book of Romans? Where is he writing from? Oh, he's writing from prison. What's he anticipating is going to happen next? All of this plays a role in our understanding of the scriptures. So we want to be looking for when we're studying, does the scripture we're studying answer any of these questions? Who, what, when, where, why, and how? And we want to make notes of all of those things. The next thing we want to do when we look for um, look at the detail is we want to mark keywords and phrases. You know, um, we talked about this a little bit last week, but for instance, this week we see the word "sign" or "signs" repeated. Okay, that's a key word. Clearly, signs are important in this passage that we're reading. The phrase "born again." is repeated. The phrase eternal life gets repeated. And so when we see these key words get repeated, we want to start marking them. Now, why do we mark them? We mark them because it facilitates our study now, and it facilitates our study in the future. And here's what I mean. We see a key word like signs repeated. 
So we mark it because we can go back and start to ask questions about that word. What am I learning about signs? And instead of like, let's say in the book of John chapter two, um, I, I, I don't know the exact number. I have it in my notes when I move to this, but let's say the word signs is used four times, five times. Well, there's whatever, 30 or so verses, at least in the book of John chapter two. So do we want to have to reread through all 30 verses to figure out where those four instances of signs are so we can study that word? No, we want to go, I'm going to read through it, look for all the key words. Oh, I see signs is being repeated. Let me mark signs, 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 signs. Okay, now I'm going to go back and study that word. And instead of having to reread again, we just look for our marking. If we want to get things in chronological order and we've marked all the references to time, we don't have to reread each time through to find all the references to time. We just go to our marking. Here's a reference to time. Here's a reference to time. Here's a reference to time. And we can say, what do I learn? What do I learn about the phrase born again? It's here. It's here. It's here. It's here. It's here. And I can focus my study in and it saves me a lot of time not rereading six, seven, eight times through the passage to study that one phrase or single word. And then the last thing is you want to make lists about what you've learned. Uh, We talked about making a list on God, making a list on Christ, and making a list on the Holy Spirit in your journal that you're going to keep forever. And what's a powerful, powerful thing is you go to your journal and you can literally read through hundreds and hundreds of things you've learned about God the Father, about God the Son, about God the Holy Spirit. But within a given book, you're going to want to do the same thing. You know, when you're reading the book of Romans, for instance, justification is a very big theme. So everything I learn about justification, I'm going to keep track of it. And I can go back at the end of studying all 16 chapters and say, big picture, what's everything I learned about justification? And it's so powerful to read through those things pulled out and highlighted and set apart. Because again, that's all your observation. Now the interpretation and the application becomes second nature because of how well you've done observing. The last thing is um, I want to talk about this idea of contrasting words and phrases because God uh, in the writing of the Holy Spirit or the, of the scriptures by the Holy Spirit has used comparison and contrast a lot. And for instance, there's an example in your book, 2 Timothy 1.7. It says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, so we've got timidity on one side, but power, love, and discipline. So what do we not have? Timidity. What do we have? power, love, and discipline. That's a powerful contrast. It's night and day. And so we want to make note of those contrasts because they become very, very important when we do get to the um, application uh, component of our three steps. So uh, one last thing, uh, and that is creating chapter themes. So, um, you know, one of the things that happens in our Bibles that we purchase is 
some editor has gone into the Bible, and I don't have a physical Bible here with me because I I have mine on um, on my computer. I have a, a Bible study software that I use. But if you were to open your your physical Bible, you would see that there are little like um, subheadings, like it'll say chapter two, and then the, some editor has given it some title, you know, like um, I I don't know. Uh, let's say that you're in, you know. Second Corinthians um, five eleven, and it, at, at the beginning it says the ministry of reconciliation because that's what that section is about. Well, some editor put that there. That's not the scripture, and we as students and and, and masters of the inductive study method, we want to be interpreting it for ourselves. I don't want an editor to tell me it's that section is about the ministry of reconciliation. I want to decide what that section's about. And by the way, you will very often read the scripture and study it the way we're teaching now, and then look at what the editor said it was about and go, uh, I mean, I kind of think it's about that, but it's way more about this other thing. Happens all the time. Don't worry about that if that happens. So instead of relying on the editor to tell you what that section of scripture is about, we're going to create our own subheadings. And at a minimum, we're going to do that chapter by chapter. So for instance, we just studied John chapter one last week. You should have had a theme for John chapter one. I'll just give you a little cheat. My theme is the word became flesh. That's my theme for John chapter one. Maybe you came up with a different theme. This week we have John chapter two and John chapter three. We should have themes for each of those chapters. And then you can go back and look at your your notes and say, chapter by chapter, these are the different themes. And do I see even a big picture theme that spans the entire book? Do I see continuity there? And again, that's more observation. So with that said, um, that's, uh, you know, what I wanted to talk about from the book, How to Study Your Bible. Next week, we're going to be getting into part two, which is interpretation. How do we determine what the Bible, what we've observed, what it really means? And so, um, you know, I highly encourage you guys, if you haven't been reading up to this point, don't worry about it. Don't beat yourself up. Just dive into chapter four of How to Study Your Bible starting next week. I think we're going to move forward then and just dive into this week's study of John. So let me pull that up, please, briefly. This week, uh, we studied John chapter 2 and John chapter 3. And I'm just curious, what were some of the big picture takeaways that you would have from John 2 and John 3? Hey, Scott, I would just say that, you know, it starts talking about the signs and how those signs ultimately give us the belief in Christ, which lead us to accepting the spirit, which leads to eternal life. Yeah, amen. Amen. So uh, the signs were a very critical component to getting the belief to happen. Is that what you're saying? Yep. Yeah, exactly. So let's all turn, if we can, to... um, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Here's where we're going to see John's purpose in the book. He said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John says here that his purpose of writing the book of John is to give you signs 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's specifically going to outline the signs that he thinks have the most power in convincing us that Jesus is truly God in the flesh, and that in believing that fact, we may have life in his name. So now when we go back to John chapter 2, we see this theme of the signs beginning, and these are the first signs that lead to belief. And we see that when Jesus performed these miracles, when he presented these signs, people believed right there on the spot. And so if that happened with them, it can happen with us. One of the things that we want to think about in this uh, section is whom or what is it that we worship? Who is it or what is it that we worship? You know, are we a Christian? Uh, Do we have religion, as it says, without a personal, intimate relationship with God? And religion would mean some sort of man-made doctrine that we follow. And, you know, religion, modern religion actually comes in a lot of different shapes and sizes and flavors. Um, You know, we think about religion and the immediate things that come to mind are things like Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. But we have many other religions. We have the religion of climate change. We have the religion of vegan diet. We have the religion of, you know, gluten-free living. We have the religion of fantasy football. Uh, There's a lot of things that people are placing their trust and their faith in. And the question is, what is it that we really worship? What is it that we really believe? What gets the majority of our attention and our disciplines? If you're not a Christian, how how would your God compare to what we've seen so far in the book of John? What is it that so far seems unique? about the deity that we have presented before us in John chapter 2 and John chapter 3. His humanity is is big. And one of the heresies, there's, there's, there's two great heresies historically. And let me just give you an even bigger picture concept before I get into these two heresies that have always uh, been prominent. If you look at any cult... And when I use the word cult, I'm saying anything that is not Orthodox Christianity. Every cult has one thing in common, and that is that they somehow corrupt the true nature of Christ. They mess with who Christ is on some level. You know, like um, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Christ is the spirit brother of Lucifer, that he is essentially an angel Uh, and that when he rose from the dead, he didn't physically rise, he was a ghost. That's messing with the nature and character of Christ. Um, Judaism would say that Jesus is a prophet, just one of many. Um, Hinduism would say that Jesus is just another God amongst many gods, and that there's not one true God, and there's not one way to heaven. Uh, This messes with the nature of Christ. So whenever you're talking to somebody, One of the ways to really 
quickly get to the heart of the matter is what do you do with the person Jesus? You know, they ask you, I mean, when I'm out in the world and I talk all the time to non-Christians, it's one of my passions is to build relationships with non-Christians and listen to their heart and um, be able to, through relationships, start to try to share the gospel. But they'll learn I'm a Christian pretty quickly. And, you know, they'll give me some objection like, well, what about evolution? Or, you know, uh, if, if, you know, the Bible was just written by a bunch of men a long time ago. It didn't really have any relevance to us today. I mean, how can you even trust the thing when it was written so long ago? They'll throw out some objection like that. We can cut through all that stuff really quickly with a simple question. Okay, that's cool. But what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? And they'll give you some answer. And most of the time their answer is, well, he's a good guy. He was a good teacher. He just wasn't, you know, God, his disciples came along later. They made that up. Okay, cool. I get that. So the problem is, is that his grave is empty. So what do you do with that? And we can get to the heart of the matter very, very quickly. So I'm digressing a little bit, but I wanted to just let you know there's the number one heresy among all heresies is to jack with who the person of Jesus really is. Now, there's two ways that people have done that historically. The first way they've jacked with it is they've denied his deity. They've said he was a guy, not God, just like I just alluded to. But actually, in the first century, that wasn't the most dangerous heresy. The most dangerous heresy in the first century was that he was God, not man. And they denied the humanity of Jesus because there was this uh, heresy called Gnosticism that said that that which is spirit is or that which I should say that which is non-material is spiritual by nature. And that which is material is corrupt and unholy by nature. Meaning if there's something spiritual like out here, then that can be holy. But this stuff, flesh and blood, because it's material, it is intrinsically corrupt. It, it can't be good. And so since Jesus was holy, he couldn't have had physical flesh and blood. He couldn't have been a real man. Well, that's heresy. And the first century church had to deal with that in a big way. So when we look at, at the person of Jesus, he is fully God and fully man. And both are critical to who he was as the Savior of the world. What was the first miracle that Jesus performed in his ministry? Water to wine. So what does that demonstrate about Christ? What does that really show us? I mean, it's cool, cool parlor trick, right? Turning water to wine. Power over the elements is one. Absolutely. Water doesn't even contain the chemical ingredients, like if you have the periodic table, what has to be present in wine doesn't exist in water, right? We got that part. And then a couple of you said controlling time. Yeah, absolutely. He controlled time. How did we know that he controlled time? Okay, he says Mike says that's the best wine, but what is that? How do, how do we know that that means, what does that have to do with time? What separates wine from grape juice? There's a fermentation process that has to take place. Time has to pass. And then as many of you have alluded to, the time or the older wine gets, the better it gets. I mean, the most expensive wines are you go into these restaurants or, you know, you go into people's private cellars and they have wines that are worth 
hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that sounds ridiculous to some of us who aren't into wine, but it's because it's so, so rare because it might be from, you know, the 1800s or, you know, in some cases, even older than that. And it might be the only bottle of that of, it, of its kind left on earth that's that old, meaning the wine is that perfect. So yeah, time has to pass. Somebody here typed, you know, was it alcoholic wine? Guaranteed it was alcoholic wine. Nobody who's at a party that you give them grape juice goes, wow, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. No wine drinker would do that. They would scoff at that. I mean, we've all been in a situation where uh, somebody wanted another bottle of wine or beer and and you're out of it and nothing's going to supplement that. They've got to have the real thing. When, when the wine was delivered at the end of the party, it was the best wine any of these people had tasted. Here's what's crazy. How much wine was it? Was it like a little bottle? Yeah, it was a lot. So there's six stone jars, and each one could hold 20 to 30 gallons. So on the low end, we're looking at 120 gallons of wine. You understand, if you went into your local liquor store, my guess is that of any given wine, they don't have 120 gallons total in stock at the entire store. And Christ throws together 120 to 180 gallons of what would be worth tens of thousands of dollars on the market per gallon today. That's a big deal. So he controls the elements. He controls time. And in a way, you could say he controls space as well because he had to age the wine instantly. What else do we see by that? Did did Christ come in and say like, I'm the hero. Check it out. Party was going to end. Everybody's going to go home sad and depressed. No, sir. Big Daddy's here. And he just come in, just bring all the glory onto himself in that moment? No. He let the servants see what happened. They went to the master. The master's blown away. He thinks the bridegroom's responsible. So he lets the bridegroom get the credit. Now, what's interesting to know is whether the bridegroom is like, oh, yeah, man, that's how I roll. Best wine later. Like, or whether he was like, oh, that wasn't me. I don't know what's going on. That'd be an interesting thing to have noted. We don't really know. But he he let... The credits possibly go somewhere else rather than him trying to seek it for himself. We're going to see the humility of Christ over and over and over again. He is God in the flesh. He just pulled off what could be argued as the most fantastic miracle possible by controlling time and space and the elements. And yet he's like, Take it to your master. And he bails out the back door before he has any chance to be given any of the glory. Let's go to the next one. What what do we see uh, in chapter 3? Well, yeah, the famous John 3.16 passage is there, right? This is the uh, passage we see held up behind goalposts all, all over the NFL and at major college events and in the World Series, at, you know, in baseball games. But what's that about? What's happening around John 3.16? What's the context of John 3.16? This guy named Nicodemus shows up. And what was Nicodemus's deal? Who was Nicodemus? Yes, he was a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of what was called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the Jewish ruling council. So let me just help you understand what's going on here. So the Roman Empire rules Jerusalem. 
And when the Roman Empire would take over a place, they would typically, the, the Roman Empire was concerned about one thing above everything, and that was the Pax Romana, Roman peace. Uh, they wanted peace. They didn't care about right or wrong. They didn't care who was right or wrong, as long as nobody's arguing about it. And so they would typically take over a place, and they would put a Roman governor over that area, and then they would let people kind of do their own thing within the purview of the Roman governor. And so underneath the Roman authority, the Jews were allowed to kind of continue to rule themselves. They had their own traditions, their own laws, and the Romans kind of let them do that as long as they just stayed out of the Romans' way and, you know, followed the few Roman rules that the Romans had set up. And so the Jews had a ruling council known as the Pharisees, and Nicodemus was one of those people, and there were 70 of these people. Now, when we fast forward to the crucifixion of Christ, the Pharisees are the ones who captured Christ, brought him forth, and had him beaten the first time. He was beaten more than once, by the way. We'll get into that. So the first time he was beaten, that the, the first beating he took of the night was in direct contradiction to the Mosaic and Levitical law, and it was by the ruling council, the Pharisees. Well, Nicodemus was one of those guys. So when does he come to him? Is Jesus out preaching amongst all the people, and Nicodemus kind of idles up amongst the crowd and is like, hey, I got some questions. He came at night. Why do you think he came at night? Yes, Letitia says that he didn't want anybody to see him. He was afraid. He didn't want to be associated with this guy just yet because this guy's threatening the Jewish system. He's threatening the Jewish ruling council. They don't like this guy. And so he wants to be there when no one's going to notice that he's there. But he's been paying attention. He's been trying to act in public like, I don't, I'm not into this guy. But in the back of his mind, he's thinking, man, there's something going on here. So he seeks him out at night. And what's the first thing that Nicodemus says to him? Yeah, Todd and Karen, he says, you come from God. The first thing Nicodemus does is he compliments him. He calls him by a um, a term of admiration and affection combined, which is rabbi. The rabbis were very highly esteemed. So he says, rabbi, he's, he's esteeming him. We know that you come from God because no one who's doing what you're doing could do it without coming from God. When Jesus hears that, his response is, oh, thank you so much, Nicodemus, for noticing. I'm really grateful that you're being so complimentary, right? Isn't that how Christ reacts? <laughs> no, that's not Christ's response. What's Christ's response? Yeah, he gets past all the nonsense and the fluff, and he's like, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He basically is like, wham. Uh, you want to talk about fluff, and we're going to get right down to the heart of the matter. And Nicodemus is blown away by that. He's like, what are you talking about? You got to be born again. Can a man climb back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? And Christ says, are you kidding me? You're supposed to be a teacher of the law, and you don't even understand this basic concept. And then he explains that we're born twice. We're born of flesh and water, which is our physical birth, and then we're born of spirit and water, which is our spiritual birth. We're born again. And how is one born again, according to what we see Christ explain in John 3? Let's read together. If you're in John chapter 3, 
Let's look at starting in verse, well, let's start in verse 11. He says, truly, this is Christ speaking, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him, may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So, what did John make very clear there? We've got to do if we want to be born again. Believe. Whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever doesn't believe doesn't have eternal life. So it's very, very simple. Now, is this belief believing like I believe Jesus really was a person? Is that what it's talking about? No. What is it saying there? Believing that he is the son of God and in so believing may have eternal life in his name. We've got to believe he is who he said he is. Jesus is one of two things. He's either God or he's a lunatic, a liar, and a criminal. There's no way around it. It's one of those two options because he he destroyed the temple. Um, you know, he claimed to be God. That's blasphemy. Uh, that also is making you a crazy person. They put white coats on you and take you away to a padded room if you insist on that you are the deity. Um, Jesus said, I'm God. Jesus said, I have come into the world to save the world. So he either was God in the flesh or he was a lunatic, a liar, and a criminal. And we can't have it both ways. Let's just um, read. I want to read to you what K. Arthur writes in the end of this study in um, on day seven. Because Kay Arthur's testimony is that her life was an absolute shambles before she was saved. It's a powerful testimony. She says, when my life was a total mess and I knew that I couldn't do anything about it, that I couldn't change myself regardless of how hard I tried, I cried out to God in ignorance. If I could just start life over, if I could just be born again. And that's when it all began to happen. And I was born again. I was absolutely transformed. Unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, was a religious man, yet he came to Jesus Christ because of signs he saw, and he said to him, No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus cut right through all of his religiosity, right through to the heart of Nicodemus' concern, and this is what he says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus asked the question anyone would ask, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And he's thinking, okay, I have to be born again. I was born from my mother's womb. I can't get in there again and be born because I'm a man now, so how can this be? And Jesus answers that men must be born of water and of the Spirit to enter kingdom, the kingdom of God. So for us to enter the kingdom of God, for us to become new creatures in Christ Jesus, for us to become children of God, we have to be born again. Well, what does Jesus mean when he says that? When he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. He means that human beings have babies. 
What does that which is born of the Spirit is spirit mean? That is the born again part. John compares spirit to wind. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from and you don't know where it's going. You simply see and hear its effects in trees, on flags, and in your hair. So how does this rebirth happen? From this point on, John's gospel explains how to be born again of the Spirit. We're born of the Spirit by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to just encourage all of you, if you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, today is the day. Today, believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Believe that he is God in the flesh, and you shall be saved, and your whole life can be transformed. Any last questions before we wrap up? Letitia says, so if pure religion is to help widows, orphans, and aliens, then is it not about religion at all and just relationship? Well, let me tell you that I have a pet peeve, and uh, I don't have a lot of time to answer this question, but I will tell you, when people say it's not a religion, it's a relationship, that's just not true. Christianity is a religion. It's just a true religion. The reason it says pure religion is to help widows, orphans, and aliens is because we are to love others as Christ loved us. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love others as ourselves. And love is sacrificial. And when we love our wife or love our children, even though we might convince ourselves it's purely sacrificial, there's a part of that that actually benefits us. If I love my wife, there's something I'm going to get from that. I benefit. She's going to be nicer to me. If I love my children, they'll want to stay in relationship with me. If I love the, the orphan, the widow, the alien, I don't get anything out of that for the most part other than just the pure act of doing it. That's why it's pure religion. Reminding, uh, re- reminding you guys of what to read, we're going to be in chapter, uh, starting on interpretation. I believe that's chapter four of how to study your Bible. And we'll be in week three of the study of the book of John. I can't wait to see you again next week. Until then, God bless you guys. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We pray this has been edifying. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a shout-out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Scott Ross Online. That's Scott Ross Online, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe catch up on past episodes, and discuss what you've learned with others. Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.